<clears throat> okay, there we go. Good morning. What <clears throat> is the meaning of life? Do you have an answer for that question? Why are we even here at all? What's the point? I think today, in this passage in Deuteronomy, we're going to get a glimpse of what this is all for and why we're here. If you've been here with us last week, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 5 and the Ten Commandments. Uh, you may be familiar with the, the Ten Commandments that God gave the people of Israel on these tablets of stone. And Chris, who is, who is speaking, said that really you can think of all of the, the following nine commandments really stemming from number one, which is have no other gods. This, this problem of idolatry, that we worship things other than the one true God. And so this is solved by worshiping the one true God. And we can understand all of God's commandments as coming back to this idea of worshiping him and him alone. So we're going to continue to unpack that here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 today to understand God's commandments. Uh, so first I'm going to pray and then invite you to open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6 with me. Father, we come before you and just recognize that you are this incredible God of love who has loved us. Lord, we thank you that you are here present with us right now in this moment, Lord. We ask that you would uh, stir our hearts as you speak to us. God, that you would um, show us ways in which we could uh, learn and grow, Lord, to be closer to you. Pray that you would uh, use these words, God, and that your word would be speaking to my own heart this morning. Um, and just pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Deuteronomy chapter 6. So there's Bibles under your seats. Uh, if you brought your own Bible, that's great. All right, we're starting out in verse 1. So Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. He says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. So Moses is reminding them of the Ten Commandments that he just told to them. And he's saying, if you keep these commandments, that you're going to have life. Right? So we see this connection here between the law and life. He says, if you, if you do these things, you're going to thrive. You're going to experience a better way of living. And as we move forward through scripture, we actually see this playing out. That when the Israelites were actually obeying and keeping the law of God, that their society thrived. Everybody had enough. The king was, was just. There was a social welfare system so that the poor were taken care of. There was, uh, people were, were taking care of each other and, and loving each other, and you had this society that was thriving and working together, and then every time they stopped keeping the law, or every time they started to worship other gods, everything fell apart. They, they stopped having justice. They stopped taking care of each other and loving each other because they forgot the first commandment to love God, to have no other gods before him. And everything fell apart. And so we see that this idea that as they follow the law, the good law that God has given them, they experience life. So he tells them this, and then he goes on to this profound statement. Um, in Judaism, this statement is called the Shema. 
It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, Jewish understanding, this verse sums up all of the law. Everything in the Old Testament, everything that we read, and all the laws that they had to follow, all came down to this. All of these things are about helping us love God with all that we are. We actually see this, this teaching, a way of thinking coming out in Jesus. He's reminding them of this reality. In Matthew chapter 22, 36, he says, uh, they come to him and say, teacher, what is, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is all the law and the prophets. That's, for Jesus, that was all of the Old Testament, right? Everything we have today. He says all of it can be summed up in these two commandments. So what he's telling us is that this is, is the lens, the way which with, with which we should look at all of the rest of Scripture is in line with these verses. So there's that, this idea in philosophy of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the, the science and the theory of interpretation. So how, how do we figure out what something means, right? Like maybe I, I can read the words on the page. It doesn't mean I understand what they mean. Uh, maybe you've come across this and if you're, uh, any of you are in English majors or, or done literature, you can read Shakespeare and, and read the words on the page and know what it says. It doesn't mean you have any idea what Shakespeare meant, right? And so part of it is you're puzzling together and trying to figure out what did, what did he mean by these words? What was he actually trying to say and communicate? And so that's what we, these are, there's different theories about how we do that. Now, <clears throat> the modern, our modern understanding of hermeneutics tells us that we're always looking at everything through a cultural lens. So you maybe heard the term of, of having rose-colored glasses on, right? Sort of tints the, the everything. So as we look at the world and everything around us, we're looking at it through our cultural experience, the childhood that we had, the language that we speak, the things that we've gone through, the, all the beliefs, everything comes together to shape the way we view and interpret the world around us, that we're making meaning through the things we bring to the table. And this is true, that we, we can never quite get to God's view of things, right? We can't have the God's eye view that sees the world totally objectively from, from outside of everyone's perspective, right? We're always seeing it through one specific lens. And the problem then is how do we know how do we know what's really true or not, right? How do, we, how do I know it's not just my experience that's coming up with this interpretation? Well, Jesus gives us the key and the answer. He says, this verse, this verse is how you know whether or not your interpretation is true and good. Does it line up with this verse? So we're going to unpack this, this verse that is so important to understanding all of the rest of Scripture and how to interpret all of our lives so the first point we come to here is the idea that God is love. Okay, so he says, first says, Hear, O Israel, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, so he makes this radical claim that there is one God. Now this idea uh, is, is really new in Israelite culture. This had never happened before in history. You had this concept of ethical monotheism. Monotheism being there's one God, right? There isn't a whole bunch of gods that... You know, some of them control the rain, and some of them control the crops, and other ones control the sun, and, and all these things, but there's one God. And not just that there's one God, but that one God is actually good. 
right? He's a, he's a God to be, to be loved, not just feared, right? He's not just powerful, but he's, he's actually someone that's good. He's a God to be emulated, to be, you want to be like this God because he's a good God. And it's a totally different way of thinking about this. I mean, even the word love here, talking about loving God, uh, is the same kind of love we'd use to talk about love between a spouse or a parent and their child, or even between friends. When we read about David and Jonathan, who are, who are best friends, this idea of love, the same word is being used. And so he's not just a good God out there, but he's our God. He's, there's an intimacy, a relationship that's being presented here, that, that this God is knowable. You can interact with this God. He wants to know you and to be known by you. A God who reveals himself to us. Again, this is a totally different way of thinking about how we would relate to God. So in the ancient world, you had all these different gods, and, and each one you know, had a different realm that it was in charge of, and they had different levels of power. Some of them were more powerful than others. Some of them had given birth to other, each other. And so you have all these different gods, and it was really like a, a brokering, bartering system, right? More like working with a cashier than a companion. So you'd come to them, and, and you'd go to the, the cosmic vending machine, and if you put in the right sacrifice and you punch the right buttons, you'd, you'd get rain or you'd get a baby or what, whatever it is that you wanted, you could work with these gods and, and come to something. If I give you this, you'll give me this. This is totally different from the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible doesn't need anything from us. We have nothing we can offer. We can't feed him. <laughs> he doesn't need things that we have. We don't need to put him in a house. He doesn't need our buildings or our resources. This is a God who is set apart and ultimate, but he's personal. This is totally different. I mean, even in all, the, all of these deities, right, they weren't necessarily good. You know, Zeus is sleeping around with people all the time and having demigod babies, and, and you've got gods killing each other. I mean, it's just, there's not, there's not really a sense that these are gods you want to be like, right? Like, maybe you're afraid of them, maybe you try to appease them, but you don't, you don't want to be like them. They're not good, they're not good gods, let alone good people. But this is a good God. And when we think about this thing that he is revealing himself as this good God, and even uh, in other monotheistic religions, so I just read through the Quran as part of a world religions course, and thinking about the conception of God in Islam, and even that, Allah reveals his will, but he, but he doesn't reveal his character. He's, he reveals a will to be obeyed and to be feared, but doesn't reveal a personality that you can know and love and have intimacy with. And so this is a totally unique among the world religions. Now, so we see this God, right? This, this one God who is love. And the command that follows is to love this God. Now, why is that? We see that God's commands are actually a reflection of his nature and who he is. So we think about the, the Ten Commandments we had last week and, you know, do not murder, do not steal, do not lie. These things aren't just arbitrary rules, right? That God's like, well, I guess it would probably be better if you guys didn't lie. Or maybe society would be better if you didn't kill each other. No, like God, God is a God who is true, who cares about life, who takes care of his creation, who doesn't take things because he owns all things and he's, he's giving them generously to others, right? He's, all of his commands are reflecting some good thing about his nature. And so this command to love God it's not an arbitrary command, like, oh, you should, you should love me. He's like, no, I, I 
am a God of love. And I love you, so you should love me. We see this in Deuteronomy. Uh, in chapter 4, it says, Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them, and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. Uh, then ne- well, we'll look at next week in chapter 7. It says, The Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. That he brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So God is a God of love, and he expresses that in these concrete ways. Right? This isn't just an abstract concept, but he's, he's giving generously, generously to the Israelites. He's bringing them out of slavery, rescuing them. Now, what do we mean when we say God is love? I think this is really important to understand the nature of God, that God is a Trinitarian God. So when we think about God, the Christian conception of God, God is one being, but three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that the relationship between those persons is one of love. That the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit is, is witnessing to their love and experiencing the love between them, and, and they're both loving each other, and you have this incredible relationship that is perfect love and service within God himself. And this is important because when we think about all of creation, so imagine, imagine if God wasn't Trinitarian, right? You have just one God who's out there totally solitary, right, for all eternity, and then this, this God decides to create something, right? So that this God would use the, his power to create a world, and then after creating that world, could interact with it. So maybe after creating that world, he could love that world because he made it, or could, that world maybe could love him because there would be some sort of relationship. But prior to creation, there would be no such thing as love because love is fundamentally relational. But if God, is trini- if God is a trinity, if God is three in one, that means that the thing that is most ultimate about reality is love. Not just God's power, but God's love in himself. So when God creates all of the world and all of the universe, he's creating it out of an overflow of the perfect love that already exists within himself. So when we talk about loving God, we're saying God, God is love at his core, at his very being, God is love. And if that was not the case, then love in our world, and we understand and think about love, it would just be an accidental property. Love would be something that maybe would be a good thing, but it wouldn't be fundamental to reality. But if God is truly love, then love that we experience in relationship with God and relationship with one another is the most important thing. So how do we understand loving God? How do we think about loving this this great God who is love? Well, first we, ha- we have to think about what is love, and I think there's this connection here between love and the law. Now, this seems really foreign and, and weird to a lot of us, but we often think of love as an emotion, right? You know, I-, I love chocolate. Like, that one's true. I really, really love chocolate. Uh, or maybe you're like, I love Sports Center, right? That one's less true for me, but maybe you really like Sports Center. Or classical music, you know, this is something I really love. If you think about love that way, and I command you, like, you need to love classical music, are you going to start loving classical music? Probably not, right? Like, you're not going to develop this affinity for this thing that you don't, have, you don't have any interest in. And so we can't think of love as this sort of abstract idea or this emotional experience. Though that is some part of it. But ultimately, Scripture shows us that love is a choice. 
It's something we do day in, day out, moment by moment in service to God and to one another. It's something that's concrete, right? Imagine if parents only loved their children when they felt like it. Or imagine you only loved your friends when you, when you felt like it, right? And you're like, no, I, I don't want to help you out today because I don't like you today. Right? Like, no, if it's a real friendship, if it's a real relationship, like you're, you're going to sacrifice to that person. You're going to serve them as a concrete expression of the love that you have for them. And so we need to think about how when we respond to God and God is presenting his love in the same sort of concrete way. But the problem is that this love is not, a, it's not our default, right? Like, this is why God has to command us to love him. That sounds really weird. Like, you know, if I love my wife, I don't need a command to tell me to love her, right? But the problem is, like, loving is not my default. It's not what I do naturally, right? My default is to be really selfish, to think about myself and my own interests, to worry about myself, right? Like, I'm not, my default is not to give selflessly in service to someone else. So we, I, we need a command that says, no, you need to do this because it's actually what's best for you. It's actually the thing that's going to bring you the most life. Now, in some of our cultural impressions, we think of law as, as being a very bad thing, right? We think like, well, if we just got rid of all the corrupting influences and, and we got rid of social injustice, then we'd all just, we'd all just love each other compassionately and we'd all just get along harmoniously. We'd have no more problems. But I think this is entirely diluted. Even uh, James Madison says, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If we were all perfect people, we wouldn't need a government. We wouldn't need laws. But we aren't perfect people. We need to be reminded, it's wrong to kill people. It's wrong to steal from your neighbor. Like, that's not okay. But we need reminders because our default is to be selfish. So much so that even I think we can come to resent the people that we love the most because we're loving them out of a selfish desire, right? So I, I like the feeling of being in love with this person, but they're making it really hard to love them right now. They're just not being lovable. And I, so I, that's, that's annoying me, right? Like, can't you be more lovable? Because I want to love you and that feels good to me. But even, even that conception of love is a totally selfish love. Because you're not actually caring about that other person's good. You're just caring about the, the feeling and how good you feel when you're with this person. And so when they make it hard to be with them, that's, you start to resent that. But that's because it's not really love. So even though our sin gets in the way of our love all the time, and it's not, it doesn't come naturally to us, at the same time, it, it seems to be our deepest desire. Right? The thing we long for the most, above everything else, is to be known and loved. To be known and loved by, by God and, and by other people. To experience that kind of intimacy and acceptance. And so it's why God has to command us to do this. He said, this is what, this is what you need most. What you need most is to be in this deep, loving relationship with me. But you're not going to do it on your own. And so I, I need you, I, I want you to love me. And he tells us, he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. That's concept of heart uh, for us also was, would, would uh, consist of the mind, too. And, and so in, uh, for the Israelites, it was, it was the mind and the desire and the will, right? Sort of every, everything you were kind of moving towards and wanting, and uh, that, that was the idea of your heart. Um, but then your soul is your essence, your being, 
Right? So the heart is sort of a subjective thing, like, oh, I, I want this, I'm moving towards this, but your, your soul is the essence of who you are. It's kind of your objective being. And then might was just your, your strength, your resources, your capacities. And so you get this sense of loving God with who I am, laying my whole life down for God, giving him my heart and my affections and my desires and orienting those things towards God, but also the very concrete, right? Like your might, your strength, right? Like the, the gifts and capacities that you have, the money and the resources you have, like all of these things in, in both these sort of abstract ways, but also the very concrete ways, giving everything towards God in love. All are being oriented towards him. Uh, Thomas Merton gives a, just a, an image of this kind of selfless love. He says, um, true happiness is found in unselfish love, a love which increases in proportion as it is shared. There's no end to the sharing of love, and therefore the potential of happiness of such love is without limit. Infinite sharing is the law of God's inner life. He has made the sharing of ourselves the law of our own being, so that in, it is in loving others that we best love ourselves. Love not only prefers the good of another to my own, but it does not even compare the two. It has only one good, that of the beloved, which is at the same time my own. Love shares the good of another not by dividing it with him, but by identifying itself with him, so that his good becomes my own. Love seeks only one thing, the good of the one loved. This is God's love towards us where he desires best, our best, for us. And so when we think about the laws and the commandments and why is God saying all this stuff? Well, it's because he's like, I want the best for you. And the best for you is to have this intimate relationship with me. And so even though you're not going to want to do it all the time, even though it's not going to come naturally, I want you to love me with all that you have. And again, we think of this idea of love and law as antithetical. How, do you, how can you command someone to love? But I think that the, the problem is that when we think of, we think of law, we think of it as, as restriction, right? But, but it's actually a restriction from loving lesser things. So think about, you know, if you're a parent and you, you really care about your child, you're not going to let them go play in the street. Not because you don't want them to have fun or, or get to run around and explore, but because you want them to have fun and run around and explore for a lot longer. And the street is going to prevent that. Right? You, you want what's best for them. You want their greatest happiness and joy. And you realize that's actually in restricting other options. Think about if you want to have good grades, right? You've got to budget and manage your time in such a way that you're like, okay, I'm not going to spend all this time doing these other things that I could be doing because I'm going to devote my time to something better. Or if you want a deep friendship, right? Like we long for have deep friendships and relationships. But if you want to have really deep friendships, you've got to spend less time scrolling through Facebook feeds and more time sitting down and sharing life with these people. Less time staying up all night watching Netflix or video games or whatever it is that's, that's filling up time. You've got to restrict those things for something that's so much better and richer and deeper. And so true freedom actually comes in restricting ourselves from lesser loves in order that we can have higher and better loves. We even get this picture uh, in the political philosopher John Locke uh, on which must, much of uh, Western, 
law and, and society has been based. He says, the end or, or goal of law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. For in all the states of created beings capable of law, where there is no law, there is no freedom. It's all just chaos, and nothing deep or meaningful ever happens. And we miss out on true life, which is this intimacy with God, because we're so busy running around chasing after things that don't give us any life at all. We're selfish and easily distracted, and so we, we need discipline and law and, and this restriction to actually help us to love well, to love God well and to love other people well. Moses understands this, and, and he, he goes on telling him, he says, impress them, these laws, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to the, your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So again, he, he bookends these commands saying, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the God who loves you. But be careful, because when you go out into the world, you'll forget that I'm the one who saved you, that I'm the one who gives you life. The Israelites took this very literally and put it into practice. One of the ways that we see this is uh, in the tefillin here. So this just means prayer. And so when, when men in the morning are praying, they'll do is they'll take these leather straps and they'll wrap them around their arms, right, with a box on them, and then they'll wrap one around their head, which has a box on it here. And in each of these boxes is a scroll that has this verse on it, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord of God with all your heart, soul, and might. And so every time they go to pray, they wrap on this very, very visceral, real reminder, concrete reminder that this is our God. He is the one who is worthy of love. And everything that I do, all of my life, is to be pointed in that direction towards loving him. The other one is the, the mezuzah here. They actually put it on the door frames of their houses. So it's a little symbol of a scroll that also has some passages. And so every time they're walking in and out of the house, they'll, they'll touch it and, and remember, this, this is who God is. Now many of these things can become, they can become legalistic. They can become ways in which we, we do them without thinking or they become meaningless. So I'm not saying we should all start doing this, but what I'm saying is that we have to think concretely about how do I live out in such a way where moment by moment I'm reminded of the goodness of who God is. Today we live in a, in a secular society. This shouldn't totally surprise you. Um, but it actually influences the way we do everything. Even as Christians, we say, well, yeah, you know, I, I believe in God and I worship him and pray to him, but even, even in that, we go about most of our day not thinking about the reality of God. We're at the store, or driving in our car, or doing all sorts of daily tasks. We're not thinking about God being in the midst of those tasks. We live most of our life as if God wasn't really there, and then maybe we talk to him on Sunday morning or, you know, in the morning throughout the week, or when crisis happens, we go, oh, I need God. Most of the time, we're not consciously aware of his presence. 
And so the Israelites put in real physical things to remind us, like, hey, every time you go outside, the Lord your God is one. Love him with all that you are. Every time you, uh, you know, go to pray, you're like, hey, the Lord, the Lord is one. I need to love him with all that I am. You're constantly reminding themselves of this reality. And so I think we too need to think very concretely about what does it mean to love God because we too forget so easily. And to be, start putting in restrictions and practices to say, how, how can I love God more? What are the things in my life that are keeping me from loving God? Now this can very, very quickly become for us something about trying to earn our salvation or, or feeling oppressed by, oh, I've got I've to do all these things and keep all these things. And we have to keep this in, per, in the perspective of the gospel. That ultimately, just as for the Jews, they understood that the reason I'm loving God is because of what he did in Egypt. Because he brought us out of slavery. He made us his own people. So we're going to love him. Just so Jesus has brought us out of slavery through the cross. Slavery to our own sin. He's brought us into this new life. And so it's not an act of, oh, I'm trying to earn my salvation, or I'm going to try to be a good enough person. No, it's not that at all. It's he was good. He kept the law perfectly. He lived a life where he was always loving God in every moment, and always loving the people around him in every moment. And I, I keep failing to do that. I constantly fail to do that. But I'm going to receive the grace that he's given to me, that he paid the price for my own failings, my own sin, my own forgetfulness on the cross so that I could be brought into this relationship with God, this new covenant relationship where he's come and rescued you and I. And so we can have this deep intimacy with God because of that. And so it's, it's actually totally freeing, right? Because doing these things, having these laws and practices and disciplines are not about earning anything or, or making God love you more, but it's because he's loved us so much that we want to love him back. And we're willing to, at any cost, structure our lives in such a way that we can do that more fully. Because we know that that's actually the richest and best thing for us. Francis Schaeffer calls this idea of discipline an active passivity. That we're, we're actively putting ourselves in places where God can work in us. Because it's not by our own strength that we become better people. But it's through his grace and his Holy Spirit that he comes in and he actually makes us love him. He enables us to and we couldn't do it on our own. He enables us to love our neighbor and the people around us in a way that we could never do on our own. And so, but part of how we grow in that is we put ourselves in places where he can work, right? We sit in front of the word and we meditate on the word and say, God, come and, and break into my heart and change my heart that I would be more loving. We, we pray and we sit in God's presence and say, God, I need you right now. I need you to come in and show me how loving you are and help me to love you better. And so I would ask you today, what are you doing to foster your love for God and for other people? Are you spending time in the Word throughout the week? Are you surrounding yourself with Christians who are reminding you, hey, look how good God is? Or, hey, here's a way we could love Him better. Who's challenging you and helping you? As a parent, how are you displaying the love of Christ to your children and helping them to love Him? Not just through the teaching and the words, but how are you embodying it with your time and money and resources and energy? What does that look like? 
Are you living in such a way where your whole being is oriented to the love of God? Jesus takes this statement and he, he expands it. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first, the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus tells us that love of God and love of neighbor are inseparable. You cannot love God without overflowing in love for your neighbor. And so ask yourself, do I, do I love my neighbor? Because if I don't really love my neighbor, I'm not really willing to serve them and sacrifice for them and give for them. Do I really love God? Have I really understood the grace that he's given me on the cross and the great expanse of his love? Because if I, if I don't love the people around me, maybe, maybe I haven't gotten that yet. And so there, part of this is displayed, our love for God. And we say, oh, I love God, right? Is we display it in these concrete ways of serving the people around us. Jesus says that whatever you do for the least of these, you did unto me. A new commandment I give to you, love one another just as I have loved you. So you should love one another. And so one of the ways that we love God concretely is by loving the people around us. Because not only, not only is that obedience, and it's, it's, but it's also displaying God's love to them. It's saying, look how good God is. Look how much he loves you through the way that I serve you. Whether it's just like, hey, you know, do you need a ride somewhere? Or I baked you something. Or I, let, me, let me sit with you while you're struggling through this difficult time in life. But actually entering into other people's lives and loving them through service. Now, as we go back to that, that I want to go back to this idea of meaning and hermeneutics that I brought up. How do we, how do we think about all of Scripture in light of this passage? Uh, Augustine, uh, one of the church fathers, gave us this idea. He talked about the hermeneutics of charity. So charity is just the old, old word for selfless love, right? To love someone selflessly as charity. So the hermeneutics of charity is that we take this passage and we look at everything in light of that. So when I read this passage, even some of the weird Old Testament passages, you're like, I don't know what's going on here or why God commanded this. I have to ask, okay, how, how is this contributing to the love of God and love of neighbor? Because it, because it had to be, right? In some way, everything in Scripture, because all of God's mission and his revelation is about this. So how does this move us in this direction? And when you think about your own life, you think about, okay, how am I, how am I spending my time right now? You know, if I... I'm doing this thing right now, is this contributing to helping me love God more and fostering greater love for the people around me? Because if it's not, maybe, maybe this isn't worth doing. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Thinking through every aspect of our lives, how do we spend our time? How do we spend our money? How do we spend our resources? Are we doing them all in such a way they're oriented towards love for God and the love for the people around us? Again, this is not our default. It's why we need to constantly be reminded. And so as Christians, if you have received this incredible love of God that was displayed most fully, most concretely on the cross, I challenge you and encourage you to, to set up your life in such a way that you would be loving God with all that you are and actively going and loving the people around you. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've never experienced that, I would invite you this morning there's a God 
who knows and loves you, who wants to have intimate relationship with you, to know your heart and have you know his heart, and that he is a good God. And if you're here this morning and, and you're thinking about that, and I would invite you right now during, during this next time to be, to be praying, to be thinking, God, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that kind of God. I don't know this God of love who's given everything for me. And, and asking to receive him this morning. God, I, wa- I want to know you. I want to know that love. I want a relationship with you as my creator. And if that's something you're thinking through, I, I invite you to come up and talk to someone afterwards. I would love to talk to you more about that. But because of that forgetfulness, it's why we do this week after week after week after week. Because I need to be reminded that, that God is good. And I need to be reminded that he's so good that even though I don't love him in return, he still loves me. That we come to this table so that we can physically remember, like, yes, this is, this is as I'm chewing this cracker, yes, God gave his life for me. As you're, you're sipping the juice, you're like, wow, God himself took on human flesh with blood in his veins that he poured out for me. And remembering this incredible sacrifice of love on your behalf. So Jesus is sitting around with his disciples the night before he's going to the cross, and he says, this is my body, taking the bread and breaking it for them. This is broken for you. And taking this cup and saying, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And so I invite those of you who have received that grace to come up and to remember, to to experience, remember what it is to be loved by this God and to love him in return. And if you're not, if you're here this morning, you're still thinking through that and you're not there yet, I invite you right now just to remain at your seat and spend this time just thinking through this and processing this. And so when we we, uh, have the communion servers come up, you're going to just make a line here in the middle you know, come up, take, receive the bread, take the cup, and then come back in to your rows and just spend some time over the next song meditating on this reality. And so I'm going to invite you right now, I'm going to read a section of 1 John chapter 4, and I want you to, you can close your eyes if you, if you want, and just listen, um, and, and just think on these words, and meditate on this scripture, and carry this with you as you are taking the bread and the cup. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. God, thank you for this reminder that you are a God of love. And even though I so constantly am failing to love you back and constantly chasing after lesser things to love instead, Lord, you are so patient and kind and gracious with us. Thank you for your ultimate display of love on the cross. God, that we know forever that you love us. May we receive that this morning, God, and be reminded of how great and good and wonderful you are. May that just pour out in the lives of those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.